All right. Uh, welcome again to another No Gi Required. And to me, today I have a really special guest, which I think we have a funny story how we met, going back to a few years. Mr. Freddie Prince Jr. Man, thanks for coming. Thanks Absolutely, for being here with brother. Friends, yeah, man. <laughs> Absolutely. We did meet in a funny, I think it was 1989 or 1990. Yeah. I was a freshman in high school. I had just won a karate tournament and thought I was hot stuff. And my godfather, Bob Wall, said, oh, hey, you think you're, you think you're good? I said, oh, yeah, man, you should have beat this kid. His name was Jack Singh Ravadi. He was from Thailand. <laughs> and uh, he goes, okay, okay, okay. And he goes, I'm going to introduce you to these uh, these guys that, uh, that teach jujitsu out of one of my buildings. I said, all right. And he introduced me to you. And he didn't tell me anything about you. And uh, he goes, take a look at him. Take a good look at him. I'll never forget this. And I'm looking, and I saw your hands, right? And I looked at my godfather, and I said, well, How's he going to beat me? And he could not hold this laughter in. And he, and he tried. And he's a tough guy. And he just starts laughing. So he goes, go ahead and learn something from a world champion. I go, a, wor a what? And I'm telling you, we started on the mats. And in about four seconds, he had me in a fireman's carry, stood up, spun me around like a professional wrestler on the second floor of this building and says, which window, which window? Like he's going to throw me out. I was like, yo, what did you just do? And he taught me two techniques. You taught me the trap and roll and you taught me the, uh, the Americana that day. And I got suspended uh, from my high school for using the Americana <laughs> about four months later at La Cueva High School. <laughs> and that's how we met. <laughs> Man, that's, uh, and you know, it's incredible because um, I met him about that time and we end up seeing each other a few years later and he never changed. He's still the same guy. Yeah, I can't help Evidently it. way more famous. Everybody knew who he was and here we are. He's still talking and treat everybody as nice as you can be. I don't think you ever let the fame come into your, your head. That And this is incredible and very rare in the industry that you lived. I think I think I was, well, first of all, my father, who, who was famous long before me, um, he was the one who had the relationship with Bob Wall. And when he passed away, randomly enough, today is the anniversary of his death. Man. He was only 22 years old. I was 10 months Today's old. Today's anniversary of my dad. My father's birthday was so It's today. my mother's birthday as well. Yeah, there we wow, go, man. It's a crazy yeah, day, it's man. My dad's it's birthday, It's a powerful man. day. <laughs> so, so Bob, Bob Wall, yes. who my father charmed, really, a lot of people unnecessarily felt responsible for my father's passing so early. They wish they could have seen some of the signs right yes, like yes. in the 70s he did too many drugs like it's not your fault but because of that him and a lot of old school guys like like gene gene labelle yeah uncle, uncle g i called him uncle gene <laughs> um pat johnson like he was the for those who don't know he was the sweet ref with the great yeah. celic mustache he, and the karate kid he, he, he taught me the roundhouse kick when i was like eight years I think old he did, he did the stunt coordinate for ninja turtles the first movie he, right? very, he very well could have yeah. but all these old school guys taught me a lot about humility and a lot about respect and a lot about patience, which is very hard to come by now. And if you don't learn it as a kid, it's so much more difficult. But the most important thing was 
when I did start pursuing acting, I maintained martial arts no matter what. And it was a great balance. And this goes even stronger to today's kids who grow up in social media where their mood is affected based on a like or a dislike, right? Oh, man, but none of incredible. that is none of that's real. That's all digital. And I always felt the sparring element of martial arts was so honest and so humbling that it was the perfect balance in a world where everyone's telling you how great you are all the time. And also when you're trying to keep someone from choking you out, you can't <laughs> think about anything. Oh, I didn't get that movie or what are you, are you going to go to sleep? So, so it was for me, what it's, it kept me mentally and spiritually sane and the lifestyle is just conducive to living a healthier lifestyle than, than the road my father went down. So I never messed with drugs or anything like that. Cause it just, wasn't on my radar as something that would help me get where I needed to go. When did you start martial arts? At what age? Uh, I got beat up really bad uh, my sec in second grade. So I think that's six years old. Yeah, okay. And my godfather said, okay, I'm going to introduce you to someone who's going to teach you how to defend yourself. I was, I think, almost seven. And it was Chuck Norris. Okay. And they both lived on, he doesn't live there anymore. So I, they lived on Donna in Ventura, which is uh, close to here. In oh, Tarzana. yeah. It's, yeah. And he walked me down there and uh, Chuck started to teach me how to fight. And then my godfather started to teach me how to fight. And they didn't call it defending yourself. They called it fighting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. back, and he would, I remember in the eighties, Bob used to take me to Westwood. <laughs> I shouldn't tell the story to whip my ass. He used to take me to Westwood to the UCLA college campus. And he would go into college bars and start fights with big, huge, like football player looking guys and win, obviously. Whoop, and then leave me like, all right, come on, Freddie, don't tell Lillian. And then drive me home. But he just wanted me to see how like badass he was. And he would do this. All He's the guy that taught my dad how to fight. He get, Muhammad Ali and my father were really tight. And they used to spar a lot. And Ali would beat him up and would, wouldn't even really pull his punches. Like he would <laughs> wow. knock my dad out, you know, put it on him. And my dad did a mean Ali impression. And he would do it to Ali, while they, which is why Ali would always pepper him. So uh, Bob teaches my dad the left hook, how to throw it. And one day they're in here in L.A., and they're at Ali's place in his living room. And they're in the in the living room. So there's furniture there. And my dad catches Muhammad Ali with a left hook. Not hard, but the couch is behind Ali and it makes him fall back. And he gets a bloody nose. And my dad runs into the bathroom, <laughs> grabs a towel, wipes the blood off his nose, and then gets in his 75 metallic blue Corvette Stingray and hauls ass home. <laughs> I'd run too. <laughs> Ali calls my mom's house. And he's being playful, but not saying, I'm going to kill you. Tell that boy, I'm going to kill that boy when he gets there. My dad gets home. My mom's like, Muhammad Ali's going to kill you. What happened? She doesn't know. There's no social media back there. He explains the story. He gets the, the bloody towel framed, and it looks like a war medal. It's on crushed purple velvet with a dark wooden frame around it. And it says, June 21st, 1975, Muhammad Ali's blood. And my mother still has it to wow. this day. I've asked for it. I stopped asking. She literally said, you can have it when I'm dead. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. But yeah, so these, these men and their wives, Jean's wife was amazing to me. Um, they really took care of me, man. The the story, I mean, Gene was in show business. He was a stunt coordinator and a, and a stunt guy for years. And, uh, and they all loved Bruce and lost Bruce. And then they lost my dad, or at least Bob did. 
And uh, so they really, they made sure they weren't going to lose me. <laughs> it's just, I, I, I acknowledge I lived a very blessed life because of what my father did, but I still had to commit to the philosophies that those men wanted me to learn. It, and that's incredible because all these people that you just mentioned were the people that we met once we arrived in America. Yeah. Bob Wall was still being close friend. Chuck, man, I can't say enough. It's a good word for what he's done oh my for gosh, yeah. myself and my brothers. But I think to me, they, they were the real martial artists. But you guys were like these, you know? to Chuck, I remember him saying this to my godfather one day at dinner. He said, they're snake charmers and we just happen to be the Cobras. <laughs> and it was his sort of discovery of jujitsu when he just fell in love with this because he was the kind of guy, and you know this, because you know him so well, like when he would spar like, and, and he was competing, he would never win. He would always let you. It wasn't until the tournament that he would be a, a straight killer, right? And just a killer. But that's what he was. He just wasn't lose, used to losing. And all of a sudden to see your philosophy and your family's philosophy just kind of, and again, these were his words, tear apart everything he believed in the most beautiful way because it opened his mind to a whole nother way of combat, which he always found beautiful and I always found so intimidating as a young boy. I didn't get confident with it until I was a grown man because it's so, there's a difference between the paintings you do in art class and the paintings you see in a museum. And when you try to compare them, and you shouldn't, but as humans we do, you just sitting there going, I'll, I'll never get that black belt. I'll never, I'll never do that. I don't understand how he got in that position. It's, it's, it's so intimidating when everything you've learned is different outside of controlling the distance. But it, but it goes to show you what a man he, he oh truly my God. is. To, to be at the top of his game and to... It was incredible. Start again. When, and allow yeah. himself to be humble. And we, vulnerable, yeah. yeah. Especially when we arrived here, I think he was the biggest star in the movie business, Chuck. One we, of, yeah. We, we could not walk on the street and people just go after him and oh, they want to sign and all this. And, and suddenly we are with him and it's like, man, we become like bodyguards. And you we're like, yeah, please yeah. let him eat. And we kind of- uh, Did we hit him up in the bathroom, he man? Never he never said yeah, no to anywhere. anybody. He never said no. I'll tell you something. It He's wasn't a no, but it was- people coming in and, and here's suddenly- the close, Here's the closest to a no Chuck ever did. Uh, we were in Las Vegas. Dennis Alexio was fighting- is that Australian kid? No, Dennis was an ISKA American kickboxer back in the 90s. And he was a heavyweight champion of the yes, world. Yes. He beat guys like Bronco, Sikatik, all kinds of like legit dudes. And uh, we were in Vegas. He was having a fight at the Thomas and Mac Arena. And Pete Sugarfoot Cunningham yes. was the undercard. <laughs> and Maurice Smith was still fighting back then on a heavyweight card. Leg kicked the guy and made him say, ow. And the guy quit. <laughs> I'm not joking. Leg kicks were new. It was a new. It was yeah. new. You know, a lot of uh, kickboxing things didn't even allow them. And then some made you do eight. Per it was all crazy back then. So anyway, we're, uh, I had to go to the bathroom. And I was young. And my godfather wasn't going to let me go alone. So he goes, Chuck, will you take uh, Freddie to the men's room? Chuck takes me to the men's room. I'm at uh, the the stall on the far end. He takes the one next to me, so no one can get next to me. And this, and we're both taking a leak. And this guy comes in, and he's like, "Chuck, Chuck, oh my God, <laughs> Chuck, Chuck, bleeping Norris!" Oh, and he's just going on. He goes, "You gotta sign this for me, man. You gotta sign." <laughs> Chuck's taking a leak, and Chuck turns full frontal, 
doesn't stop peeing and goes, right now? <laughs> and the guy goes, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll wait outside. I'll wait outside. And I'm like, I'm like 12, 13. I was looking at this like, oh my God, you're the coolest guy I've ever seen. <laughs> he was so, but he wasn't a jerk about it. He just kind of looked at him with that deadpan face and he's like, right now? Um, yeah. There's a Chuck Norris meme hidden in there somewhere, you know? <laughs> Every I see him like once every five years at a convention or something, and he'll run up and you know give me, and he's so sweet to this guy. He'll still he broke my rib on accident when I was fifteen. As <laughs> I got cocky with a jab, he didn't mean mean to. He's just Chuck, and he's still a pie. I'm so sorry. I heard your mom was gonna kill me. I was like, yeah, we didn't tell her. Don't worry. <laughs> it was wild, man. I love growing up out here, man. And 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 he's such a great guy in a way that he. He taking care of people around him. Oh, and yeah. Chuck, yeah, I mean, he, that's how you have to do it. Our school, he he called one day us and said, "Hey guys, I have surprise for you guys." John Jacks, you're the only brother left in LA. He stole the rest of your family. Yeah. And took over Walker, <laughs> Texas Ranger. Yeah. <laughs> then we, yeah, I remember when he was about to leave. He's like, "Hey, someone, you, one of you guys, gotta go with me." And we look at each other, and then and he was closer to my older brother Carlos. And yeah, that's why Carlos lives in Texas. Because of yeah, Chuck. and his neck lives yeah. in like Oklahoma, right next door. <laughs> oh my God! I was talking with somebody. I think it was uh, another actor who fell in love with jujitsu. I think it was Mark Paul Gosler, and uh, he was. He goes. I think he trained with your brother. He was like, "Look at this guy's neck." I was like, "That's John Jackson's brother, man!" Oh my God! We were in like uh, I don't know some convention somewhere, but it's just all these connections from that television series basically chuck falling in love with the machado Man. family has blossomed that school and that philosophy all over and i know it started in brazil but when chuck kind of made you guys famous and all of a sudden you guys are on the cover of black belt magazine Man, doing the job for him making him look super tough like that it blew up it, it blew up it, it was incredible because the moment he said he does train jiu-jitsu with us it changed everyone's life. That means suddenly from nobody, everybody's like, if Chuck Norris does, it must be good. And perceptions change because jujitsu, and I remember this clearly being a Southern California kid in, in the 80s when martial arts blew up, right? So anything new is wrong until proven otherwise, Yeah. right? Yeah. We are creatures of habit. There's the saying, I go with what I know, the devil you know. All these sayings exist for a reason. And when jujitsu came on the scene, it was new and scary. And martial arts teachers, I think, more for fear of looking bad and losing students were very resistant to both families when you oh, guys yeah, came yeah. up Our here. Our cousins, Horan uh, and the Gracie, Hoyce, everyone. I mean, we, we in the beginning, people did not know us. And they first said, we don't like those guys. That's right. <laughs> Not who are those guys. Now, right to, we don't like yeah, those we don't guys. Like, we don't like those guys. And, and we never even met anyone. But I remember Chuck was already training jiu-jitsu with us. And once in a while, I have people from other martial arts style that they came in and they just challenged. Hey, I want to see how good you guys yeah. are. And I remember he asked uh, his lawyer to write <laughs> a letter saying just, in case somebody gets hurt, say, okay, before we train, sign here just in case somebody gets hurt. We don't get sued by. Yeah. But we have a lot of people that came in, and every day we did not hurt anybody, but we just showed jiu-jitsu. Showed how effective it is. And they all like, oh, my God, I have to do that. 
Yeah, once once Chuck said, you know, because I was uh, the first time I spoke to him about jujitsu was after I had had trained with you, and I was talking about it, and I said, you know, I just I never imagined. He goes, yeah, you you don't realize that ninety five percent of the street fights you see end up on the ground. You just remember the ones that ended in a spectacular knockout, yeah, but yeah. that's one out of every you know, 60, he's like, the rest go to the ground. So whoever knows that world the best is always going to win the fight. Now, did, you, did you do point fighting or was it full contact? I did uh, Taekwondo for okay. long because I trained Tang Sudo under okay. Bob. And then uh, in New Mexico, they had Kempo Karate, which okay. was more like point style karate, but I never clicked with that style. I trained it and I completed it. But as soon as I was done, I came back to California and started training what I liked. To because train. even those arts, whether you're training or competing, you always fall to the ground. I yeah, mean, even I mean, point fighting, it would happen all. Boxing what, was the closest. Like I got, I had the pleasure of meeting Johnny Tapia in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he was a bantamweight champion who just had a crazy, crazy life, was legally dead twice, had serious drug addictions. And he loved my dad and I needed a father. Right. And so he came into the Muay Thai gym that I was training in, in Albuquerque and he said, uh, he's talking to my trainer because I was the only white looking kid in a gym <laughs> full of Mexican dudes and black dudes, right? He goes, who's the little white kid? And uh, my coach said, oh, that's that's Freddie Prinz's kid. He goes, that's Chico, that's Chico Jr. <laughs> and uh, he goes, yeah, he goes, oh my God, I love this day. So he comes up to me and he starts talking up my pops and and talking about how much he loved him. And I'm a kid, okay? I'm, th I'm probably seventh, eighth grader at this point. Oh, okay. And uh, had only trained martial arts, hadn't trained boxing. Muay Thai was the closest that I had gotten even kickboxing. And that was basically all leg kicks for me. So this guy is suddenly talking to me. He's a New Mexico legend. We all knew Johnny back then. He would only win a fight if you cut him and then he'd just kick your ass. But he was a world champion. So he started teaching me little things you know just working off the jab and pivoting off my jab and slipping punches left to right which was something i had never done in a karate <laughs> tournament in my life and let me tell you something in the 90s taekwondo guys had no hand skills yeah so once i learned that jab and i learned how to slip i mean i was pointing guys like i wasn't even hurting them i was just putting a stiff larry holmes fast jab out there and scoring and people didn't know what to do now it's evolved the, the hands massively. Are evolved oh yes. yeah yeah and there's kicks to to take out that quick movement on the jab that'll put you to sleep too, but uh, but I had so much success with with Johnny and I fell in love with him that I started training boxing and then he went to jail and uh, he went to jail about four times while I was training with him. But uh, but he would always come into the school the day he was going to turn himself in and say, "Don't be like me." Don't, you know, don't be a screw up. Drugs is what did this to me. I put poison in my veins and that's why I'm going to jail, you guys. So you don't do that. And then he would get sober in jail and train like mad and then go on a six fight win streak, win the title again, do it, some cocaine it, and go back to jail. It, but isn't that great that, you know, he knows that that was wrong, but he, he tried you, to help but he, he doesn't want to see you and he tells look i'm doing something wrong he literally had been legally it. dead twice he saw his mom get killed in front of him like he was his brain had already been reprogrammed and he knew who he was and he did not believe he could change but he damn well wasn't gonna let us fall down that road and he was honest with so much honesty and truth about who he was and what his shortcomings were and again, this was a world champion. So when he came in there, every kid was just, and he was a little guy, maybe 115 pounds, but everybody was like looking up to him because yeah. he was this larger than, than life person. He's, he's passed on, rest in peace. But 
these were the men that 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 gave me balance in my life, man. I still feed on sparring to this day. The pandemic's been so hard because it's I, you know, it's literally blood, sweat, and tears. You know, you can't, you can't but, be swapped. But do you that. feel in in the present moment that we are? the advantage that people there were involved with martial arts and have that kind of people surround you as an early age, you're capable to do so well in this moment. Well, like we said in the beginning, the level of patience that it, that it teaches you to have, I think prepares you for life better than, than anything else. I know I'm sure there's other things out there, but anything that I've experienced and that balance is what gets people through, man. You can't, like I worked for Vince McMahon in the WWE when I retired. That's another thing I want to ask you. I was going to ask that? you that too. Well, but and this and he's a one. He, he's wonderful in some regards, but he's a hundred percent wrestling all the time. And because of that lack of balance, it it damages some of that decision making. You know, yes. it's like you go with what you know. Yes, he's a Reaganomics '80s man. So if there's a problem, <laughs> he throws money at it. Well, creative problems aren't solved with money. You have to solve those creatively with the right side of your brain, not mm -hmm. the left. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's where their company is sort of sort of run into trouble. But when you have the people that surrounded me in your life. And Vince is a boss guy, so he has yes men. I had no men. If I would have ever gone around Bob Ball and been like, yo, man, you see that movie I did? I'm hot. Like, he would slap me across <laughs> the face in front of his wife. Like, it just, and I know he would have done that. So that was just never, that was never going to happen, man. It just wasn't, they didn't allow me to become that kind of dude. I don't have friends that are that kind of people. It's why I was only willing to go so far in the business. It was why it was easier for me to take a step back because it didn't. Here's some cool knowledge Bob Wall dropped on me. He said, uh, everybody has three personality types, the alpha, the beta, the omega. And he got this from Sigmund Freud. He didn't come up with this himself. I checked. <laughs> he said, there's a dominant personality in everyone. Most artists are beta personalities. Um, most fighters are alpha personalities and most businessmen are omega personalities. And he said, and here's how you can tell. He said, compliments and criticisms are the truth teller to find out what kind of individual you're dealing with. So an example, if we say, if you go up to Kobe Bryant and you rest in peace and you said, Kobe, you're the best. He's already decided how he feels. So you're not making him feel any better. If you go up to Kobe Bryant and go, you suck. You'll never be Jordan. He's already decided how he feels. You're not affecting him in any way, shape, or form. So it's just a, yeah, thanks, or yeah, whatever. Actors are much more beta personalities, very susceptible to compliments and criticism. You're the best. Oh my gosh, I must be the best. You suck, I suck, I'm never going to do this. And then the omega is the long-term thinker. So they just want to know your motive. Oh, I think you're the greatest jujitsu practitioner in the world. What does he want from me? <laughs> that, and so, and he said, he goes, this is a great way for you to kind of decide the type of people that you want to have in your life you should compliment them and you should criticize them, criticize them and you should see how they react to that. And that's going to let you know what kind of people you want. And he said, always find omegas, always find omegas because they'll think about your long-term goals. And so that's what I did, man. And that sounds when you're 15 and he tells you that it sounds like a bunch of nonsense. But when he tells you that for seven years to you're 22 years old and all of a sudden you're making money in this business and making decisions and you see all these people coming up to you. You start going, oh, wait, wait a minute. These are, oh, I don't want any of those kind of people around me. I'm going to take this dude who, when I said, oh, yeah, you're great at this. He was like, well, what do you mean? 
And, uh, and that's who I like. I like the Omegas. I don't want the guy who's like, oh my God, you think I'm amazing? Oh, you broke my, I don't want those people. And I'm not saying it doesn't work for everyone, but for me, I need the more long-term pragmatic type people in my life. It's, it sounds to me like more real people. My wife. Which, which is rare. My wife. In the world she's, a New York, she's a New York Jew who grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s in New York City. She's the realest woman I've ever met, man. <laughs> <laughs> she, so, like how you said, I've never changed. And you said it with a smile. When my wife says, like, oh, my God, he's never changed. <laughs> so, but, but she's straight up with me and she's honest that I'm straight up and honest with her. So that's why we've worked for the last 20 years. But the same things you love about me are the things that drive her nuts, you know? Oh, my goodness. I still man. play video games and board games with my kids and with grownups. And she's like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> but it's what I love, man. She doesn't give me a hard time. She just pokes me a little bit. Yeah, man. And let's see on that uh, WWE, man. What was that? Because I know this was you, you the got craziest. invited and was in a Hall of Fame and all that. This was weird, dude. I grew up loving it. And I went to WrestleMania into the Hall of Fame and somebody who worked there started talking to me about what I liked and didn't like. And I started telling him what I would do, you know? And at the end of this conversation, this person said, I'm not letting you leave Florida until you talk to Vince McMahon. And I said, well, I'm leaving tonight, so <laughs> that's not going to happen. And uh, they were like, well, you're in New York. You have to come up to the office and, and meet him. I said, uh... I just quit the business and I was, was happy. I just bought a, a place in New York uh, in Tribeca. It was right across from the Tribeca theater as a place I'd wanted to live for a while just to see what New York was like. Right. And I got it for Sarah as a, as a gift, but I really wanted to experience it. So I was up there anyway, Sarah was working in LA. I didn't have anything to do. So I called him. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go up to Stanford, Connecticut. And they said, okay, Stephanie wants to meet you first. That's Vince's daughter. And she's like the number two in, in, in command there or whatever position she has. I don't know. Um, so I take the train to from Grand Central all the way up to Stanford and take a taxi to the Titan Towers, which is where Hulk Hogan used to work out in the 80s with the <laughs> yeah, neon lights. Yeah. And the gym was still there with the neon lights. It's like a time capsule, this building. I go and I talk to Steph. She asked me a bunch of questions, throw some scenarios at me. I kind of tossed to her how I, you know, what I would think. And she goes, you have to talk to my dad. And I'd laugh. I go, that's what the last person said. <laughs> and uh, I go, when do I talk to your dad? She goes, you're going to talk to him next. She goes, but here's what you have to remember. No one's willing to tell my dad no. That's how we got on this. Uh, no one's willing to disagree with my dad. And not only will you disagree, but you won't just crap on it. You have ideas and, and you're, you're looking to solve problems. I said, yeah, okay, I can, I can do that. And she goes, and it also seems like you don't care um, whether you keep the job or not. And uh, I said, well, my wife says I don't care about anything. So, yeah, you're pretty much dead on. And uh, so uh, she goes, so I think you'll be brave enough to, to take the job. I go, look, I'm, it's cool. Let me go talk to your dad. And everyone had built it up like this. It's going to be this horrible thing, right? So I go in and uh, I meet with Vince and he's awesome. And he talks to me about it and he offers me the job. And he, I, I mentioned this earlier, you know, not having a dad. My kryptonite is if someone calls me son, right? So he goes, look, we can really use your son. And as soon as he said that, I was in the room, in the room. I go, yeah, I'll take the job. <laughs> didn't even like talk to an agent or a lawyer or met, didn't even negotiate. Was like, yeah, man, just pay me in stock. And we're, we're good. You don't even have to pay me a salary. Just give me a stock option in the company. I believe in, in what I can do. And he's like, oh, God damn, all right. <laughs> and so I start the next week and my very first day, 
I get called into Vince's office. <laughs> so horrible. And uh, the head writer of the show is in there and Vince sits me down and he says, the guys we're friends now, but this guy hated me for a good month. And he says, uh, he goes, Brian, this is Freddie. Freddie, Brian, I go, hey, you know how I'm like, hey, bro, great to meet you, man. He goes, Brian, Freddie's going to fix this bullshit you wrote. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I literally am like, what? And the other guy's looking over at me like, what? And he goes, all right, you guys get out of here, get to work. <laughs> and I walk out and the first thought of my head is like, what? Did, I, I got to quit. I have to quit. Like, I have to quit. And I'm walking down the hall with this dude. And I go, hey, I, dude, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I had no idea. And he goes, it's because you just came to the company. That's why he's doing this. So he's genuinely mad at me. And I'm like, bro, what? <laughs> like, how do you not know this was a sabotage job? So all the writers hated me for like the first four to six weeks. And then I slowly started to like earn some of their respect. And then after that, some of their love. And then once they saw my ideas getting over, uh, they started bringing some of their ideas to me and saying, hey, what do you think about this? Could you could you put your fingerprints on this and, and you know, do what you do to it? And so we started, you know, learning to appreciate each other. But it's a circus there, bro. You're not allowed to yeah. give. I mean, I never followed this rule, but you're not allowed to give the material to the talent until the day you shoot. And it's a live show. They're like, well, Vince might change it. And I'm like, well, he ain't changing what I write. So <laughs> I would give it to him when I wrote it, which would be a week in advance. And then I go in the office and Vince would be like, okay, change it to this, that, this, and that. I go, okay. And then I go to the talent and I go, just do what I told you to say. <laughs> and then I'd go and take the bite the bullet for it. And he'd be like, what the hell is da 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 da? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Vince. There wasn't enough time. I didn't, it's all me. It's not on them. They didn't even know. I go, well, listen to the crowd. They're hyped up. He didn't get a what one time in his whole promo monologue. I'm like, they didn't want it. And he's like, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, they didn't. All right. Well, don't do that shit again. And then the next week I do it again, <laughs> do it. Eventually caught on to me. And so he tried to get me later, but I didn't care. Like Stephanie said, if he fired me, he fired me, but I knew I could do a good job. So just let me do my thing. And so once I kind of, you know, made my bones with a couple characters and undertaker suddenly said, that's the only guy who's allowed to write for me. And once he said that, I kind of had a, a green light to do a couple stories on my own after that. Cause one guy, one top guy dug what I did, you know. I just wrote all the stuff I wish I could have said in movies. <laughs> but I always had to be the sweet boy, you know, so I never got to say any of the tough and, buff guy lines. <laughs> and, man, I I did see almost, I think, all your movies that you did, you know, and uh, I still know what you did last summer. Oh, man. She's all that. And, and you know, it that seems to me, That was my sideburn me, days, man. brother. And, and the thing is, I noticed that the young audience loves you. The teenagers, man, they, yeah, they kind of saw and... They, we had a good, and still to this day, it's funny because they're all about 10 to 15 years younger than me. And uh, they're very vocal on social media. And I'll still get a ton of She's All That Love. And then there's like a whole younger generation that loved Scooby-Doo that go By crazy. Way, and I always my, feel bad because I'm like, yo, I my daughter, seen any of my movies. My daughter <laughs> asked for autograph. Before I leave, when? my younger daughter. She just asked me to get from Does you. Does she not have one after all these years? No, my younger one, I don't think you met her. My oh, no, she I only said, know Daddy, can one. you get her autograph? I said, I'll talk to him. I'll, we'll get I'll it try. Done. We'll, we'll try. Get it. Yeah, it's going to be real hard. <laughs> but that, that's incredible. And all those movies, they, they kind of, uh, you're right there. And especially Scooby-Doo, man. That was, I saw that movie, I don't know how many times with my kids. So I that, love it, man. That movie, Sarah was going to do. And I don't remember what movie I had 
said I would do, but we had only been together four or five months and I already knew she was going to be the one. And I was like, yo, you're going to do, you're going to do Scooby. And she's like, yeah. I was like, where are they filming? She's like, Australia. I said, for how long? She's like five, six months. And I was like, man. And in my head I go, I'm going to get this movie because I'm not going <laughs> to be away from her for the next six months. And so I called my agent. I was like, hey, tell them I'm, I'm interested in Scooby-Doo. And I, they brought me in there. You, you want to do that? I was like, yeah, man. Who would be better for Fred than me, man? And like, Fred. I'm giving them this whole spiel. And meanwhile, I hadn't even read the script yet. I just didn't want my wife to be or my girlfriend at the time to be gone. And they were like, yeah, okay, cool. So they offered me the movie. And then uh, Sarah was still working Buffy. I flew down to Australia, set that crazy, we, had, we rented this house that was the guy who invented Nintendo's house. It was right on the water. And I set it all up for her. It had this housekeeper named Violet and she would cook these like, these like hot pots that was like, just so good. Like it's like a shabu shabu almost like you'd slice the meat real thin and shake it in Man. the broth. Oh, so good. We lived like royalty out there and then it was taken away. We had to come back to the States. <laughs> Which I would say, I know it's <clears throat> might be hard to answer that, but which one of the movies you did you felt like, man, that's that was my favorite? Or each one has it's tricky, their moment. Man. It's yeah, it's you know, I again this is harder to learn. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, because when you're older, it's hard to learn new things. But I I was fortunate enough to really learn and focus on living in the moment and and finding what's good now. And uh, so there's definitely special things from all the movies that I did. And again, I've only seen three movies that I've ever been in, but I know what I read the script. I know how to end. Um, but as far as like my favorite experience, and this will sound weird to people who followed my career, but there was this random science fiction movie I did called Wing Commander. Some website had it as like the fourth worst science fiction movie ever. And it was, but we shot in Luxembourg, Europe, which is the second smallest country in Europe next to Vatican City, which is actually a country. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, and uh, it bordered four other countries, France, Germany, Belgium, and Brussels or something like that. And we would go out there and I didn't speak French and uh, they didn't want to speak Spanish. So we were having a hard time communicating. <laughs> but on the weekends, I would rent this KTM motorcycle, which was an Austrian brand bike. Yeah. And I would ride through four countries in a day. And it's all about balance for me, right? I was in such a strange place where every voice I heard wasn't familiar. I had no friends out there. Matt Lillard and I had just met. Like we weren't buddies and he didn't know how to ride a motorcycle and was girl crazy. I wasn't, <laughs> I had a girlfriend. And uh, so on the weekends, I would literally just, I, I met these dudes that worked at the American Air Force Base about a month in, and they started renting bikes and we started doing it together. And it was just became this amazing like European vacation. And then five days a week, I'd be shooting aliens with an AK-47 in a full spacesuit. only they didn't put breathing machines and all the extra spacesuits. So like eight or about 18 seconds into the scene, I just hear this and I turn cause that's not supposed to happen. I have a line. It's going to have to loop it. And this dude's just down on the ground. I'm like, this guy's pretending he got shot. All of a sudden, another guy, oh, these dudes man. start fainting because they can't breathe. And they didn't want to complain. They had never been an extra oh before. God. Luxembourg didn't make a lot of movies. And so if I pick my mask up, I'm like, these guys are dying. For real, what's going on? And they all realized all of a sudden, oh, there was no air circulating. I'm like, yo, oh, Jesus, bro. 
<laughs> what? <laughs> but it was a great experience. I mean, they, we didn't have A plus people outside like our top line people. Like we had Peter Lamont as a line producer. So that's awesome. He did Star Wars. We had Thierry Henry as the cinematographer. He shot this great movie called Das Boot. Um, which is this uh, German submarine movie back in the day. And he was the cinematographer on this. So we had good top of the line people, but then we had a bunch of crazy Dutch people that didn't care about anybody's rules or safety. And I'm telling you, there's like, there's a scene where an airlock breaks and it's sucking everything out, including Matthew Lillard. Okay. And the rig that they set up is a two, a two, two wheel pulley system that lifts him. And then another guy pulls him but they're only using a rope over the shoulder and hauling ass they're, And that's, that's their machine that they're using. And I'm supposed to hang on to this guy. Right. And so we're talking through the stunt and I'm inexperienced in the business, but still I'm like, man, this just seems kind of sketchy. Yeah. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, the guy pulling him weighs at least 260 and I weigh 180 and I'm supposed to stop Matthew from getting pulled out the airlock and he's supposed to be running as fast as he can. And is he going to stop on a dime? And they go, yes, <laughs> that's the response. Yes, that's how it's going to go. And so I look at Matt and he's he's hyping himself up. So he's like, yeah, that's how it's going to go. I'm like, okay. So we do, I'm telling you, it's take one. All right. We, they only do a rehearsal half speed. So no one knows how this is going to go. So all of a sudden, ready and action. And they turn on these huge loud fans, which is blowing debris. So now the people can't even hear the commands and what's going on because it's so loud. We're going to have to loop the scene, but we're still acting. And I'm, his name's like Maniac or something. I'm like, Maniac! And he's like, no, help me! And I'm running and he's getting, and they go, action. And the first guy pulls and it lifts Matt up. And the big dude is like a linebacker and he takes off off camera and he's running and Matt's flying. <laughs> and I'm hauling ass. And I'm faster than the big guy, but not stronger. So I catch up to Matt and I hit my mark, right? And they're supposed to say, stop. Well, they do, but the fans are super loud and the big guy's just not hearing it. So he, it's not even a slowdown. He just keeps going until he can't go anymore, which is beyond the door. So stop. I put my foot down. The big guy doesn't. He keeps going. So my whole body gets pulled forward. I see Matt's face <laughs> literally go, I don't want to curse on your podcast, but he goes, oh, fudge. And I can hear it. And I'm trying to hold on to him, but this guy's huge. And all that's going to stop him now, unless this big, huge Dutch guy doesn't stop, is a giant iron door that's been painted to look like an airlock. And so eventually... I'm like, yeah, he's not stopping. I can't hold on. So I just <laughs> let him go. And Matt smashes oh, right man. into this wall and drops. <laughs> and the fans cut and the director's going, I yelled, stop. And the Dutch guy yells back, I can't bleep and hear you. <laughs> and I'm done. Like, I'm dying laughing. Matt's rolling on the ground. It was, and as much of a cluster blank as it was, Every day I had an absolute blast and had a ton of fun. I'm still friends with some of the people involved with that project today. And I was a baby then. I was 21, maybe 22, maybe. I could Man. just drink legally. Like it was so much fun. I got to fly in a pretend spaceship, man. <laughs> oh, man. And let me ask you too. I think also you were nominated so many times for awards no 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 no, no. i won like goofy awards like nickelodeon awards stuff like that but emmys and stuff you have to submit yourself 
to be considered. And I never believed in that. I've actually never even watched the. This is my soapbox, okay? I always got mad at award shows because I'm like, yo, they're not paying any of you guys to go there. And they're making hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And you're getting a piece of tin or you're one of the five that did it. And they're just going to have a camera on your face and you ain't even going to get paid. So I don't even go to the, I never understood that. I never bought into the, this is another Bob Wall thing. He always thought they were BS. He would use the other word. And uh, Lillian and everyone else would sit down to watch it. Goes, I'm not watching that. It's a beauty pageant. Who cares? <laughs> just walk away. So that's kind of how I was molded and programmed to, to interpret that stuff. It's not my fault. It's just how I was programmed. But once again, I see the, the teens, man, they, they really oh, love Oh, I won some teen awards, man. brother. They yeah, used to give they, out those surfboards, the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. And they they call, I probably shouldn't say this, but they call you ahead of time and tell you that you won because they want you to go, right? <laughs> so I think I, like two years in a row, I won like the sweetest boy on in a movie award and the hottest kisser or whatever their goofy awards are. And the third year, they're like, hey, you won these three surfboards. And I legit was like, yo, can you guys give them to somebody else, man? I just, I'm not trying to go. It was on a weekend. I was going to go surfing down in, in San Onofre. And I was like, yeah. And so they said, yeah, no problem. <laughs> they gave them to somebody else, man. But they were all fake awards. You know what I mean? So I appreciate the love. But it was more like, hey, come be on our TV show for free so that we can make all this ad revenue off your ass. It's basically is, what it was. But a lot of people don't know that. Man. No, just, but it's all love. I mean, it, it's not anything to get yeah, angry but, about. But yeah, the great thing is the way you take that. You, like, you know, that's why you, they were you're the real guy, surfboards. You know? <laughs> I think I, I think we did the Boys and Girls Club, or back then I think it was just the Boys Club of America, and uh, we auctioned them off and we gave the money to them. That is awesome. And also you did, and you still do, or you did some voiceover in some I've cartoons? Done I've done some... That was man. pretty wild, man. They let me do a Star Wars cartoon. And uh, this is wild. So they don't, they keep it all hush hush, right? And so my my agent said, Hey, they want you to read for this thing. I don't remember what it's called the Wolf Pack. And I'm reading the sides and I'm like, man, they're like totally ripping off Star Wars, <laughs> man. This is like they're gonna get sued. Like, this is a total ripoff. So I get there. And there's this old school voiceover legend in the parking lot who I know. And he knew my dad back in the day. And he's uh, he's smoking marijuana in the parking lot, right? And this guy's in his like late 50s. And he goes, Freddy! <laughs> I go, hey, man. He goes, are you here to read for Star Wars? I'm like, nah, I'm doing something. And I stop and I go, wait. And he goes, yeah, they always try that sneaky stuff, but they didn't fool me. He's toasted. He goes, you need to loosen up before you go in. I'm like, no, brother, I'm good. Have a good day. I almost said his name. And uh, so I walk in and now I see like the artwork and I'm like, yeah, this is Star Wars. I walk into the room for the audition and, and voiceover is just, you're in a sound room like this with a glass partition. You can't hear them unless they turn on the mic. It's so unhuman there's nothing like good about it right and i see the guy who created the clone wars i recognize him because he wears this like goofy black cowboy hat that he loves even though he's not a cowboy his name's dave i love it <laughs> um and i look and i go hey man is this star wars and he kind of smirks and i go all right hold on a sec i gotta take this more seriously <laughs> and so i go over like one more time i'm like all right cool 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 i go in and read and uh i find out the next day that disney doesn't want me that uh they didn't, they didn't even listen to the audition. They just had the guy they wanted and uh, that it was going to be a whole ordeal. Five minutes later, 
Seth Green, the actor, calls me and goes, hey, man, you're doing that Star Wars cartoon. I'm like, how'd you know about it? He goes, Dave Filoni just called me and told me you're doing it. He just asked to see what kind of a dude you were. I told him you're a good dude. I was like, oh, thanks. I heard it was somebody else. He's like, Dave doesn't like that guy. He likes you, and he's not letting them pick. I was like, oh, well, it's good to know who likes me and who doesn't. <laughs> so I, I took the job and uh, and would only deal with Dave and the LucasArts people and got to be a Jedi and got to learn about the Force from the guy who learned about the Force from George Lucas. And it was such this sort of like, it was like nerd 101, right? But at Harvard, not at not at like my local JUCO. You know what I mean? So it was it was intense and awesome. And we did four years. I wanted them to kill me in the second year because it would have been cool, but they, they weren't going for that. So I did all four years and uh, I loved the people that I got to work with. Disney was kind of weird, but at least they were straight up. You know, they didn't like me, so they didn't like me. You know, that night everybody's going to dig you. But Dave dug me, so it all worked out. But yeah, man, it was... Uh, my daughter got to experience that and she was of the right age when it came out that it was new and it was her introduction to star wars and the craziest thing he did about that cartoon he's so smart man he's the guy behind the mandalorian him and john favreau but john favreau also did his first cartoon the clone wars and they've been talking about mandalorian stuff ever since man, john played I, I a mandalorian yeah, yeah, I love, yeah i love pre vizsla in and if you want to see sick wushu the choreography just type in on youtube Pre Vizsla versus Darth Maul. And you'll see a sick kind of wushu Sith level, use the energy around you skills versus Mandalorian technology and how one has to chip away at the other to win. And it's done beautifully. It's one of the best choreographed fight scenes on film. Forget live action animation on film. It's that good. And he chops his head off at the end. It's so great. Um, spoiler. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, man. So I got I got to be a part of that that world, the good and the bad, because some of the people are crazy about it and get angry that the product hasn't aged with them. Right? They want it to be for them every time. Like, dog, George Lucas gave up his salary to get all the rights for the toys. So who do you think Star Wars is for? <laughs> yeah, is for kids and and people who never grow up. Right? But. But as far as like who it's for, some people got so mad. I'm like, dude, my kids loved it. I didn't love it as much as the original Star Wars. But you know who hated the original Star Wars? My mom. Because <laughs> it wasn't made for 35-year-old <laughs> women. It was made for kids. Why do you think there were Ewoks in it? They were supposed to be Wookiees. But he thought it'd be too scary. Flip Wookiee around, it spells Ewok. He just shrunk it up and he made him tiny little cute Wookiees. Because it's for yeah, kids. Yeah, my, my younger daughter loved it. <laughs> oh, she my loved kids it. loved yeah, it, man. They love it. Yes. I like Rogue One. As far as the new ones, I like that one a yeah, lot. Yeah, I, I, I was a fan of the first three, of course, yeah. and then Rogue One. And then Mandalorian, for me, it's great. that brought me back. All the other so all the other ones I didn't care for. It, it, it makes me feel like a kid again. Oh, Mando will for sure. Yeah. Here's a deep dive for you on Mandalorian, though, and this is like fun homework. So Dave and I are big Japanese cinema fans, right? And there was a not even a trilogy. I think they made eight or nine of them, uh, a series of films in Japan called Lone Wolf and Lone Wolf and Cub. I have them all. So you've seen in yes. season one, this isn't a spoiler, when Battle Droid Rodriguez, I, there's no Spanish people in Star Wars ever, so I called it Battle Droid, Battle Droid Rodriguez. <laughs> he's Puerto Rican. Um, when he comes out and he doesn't allow anyone behind him to protect the baby, like that's straight up yeah, Lone Wolf yeah, and Cub. Yeah. And I love the the sort of, the sort of uh homage yeah. yeah and and the fact that they're not they're doing shots straight from john ford movies which is what inspired the the lone wolf and cub movies which is what inspired the mandalorian but some of the shots are straight up like sergio leone 
and and the extreme close-ups, things like that, like that spaghetti Western style, the Italian take on American Westerns. Sergio Leone never stepped foot on America until like after his fourth Western that he made. He <laughs> shot them all in Spain and Italy. He'd never even been here before. And you watch those and you're like, wow, it's so authentic and real. But it was his style. And they've really taken that old school, slow patient style and really made it work like the first 20 minutes of solo were slow and patient i was like wow i think i'm gonna like this and then i was like oh no no i'm not gonna like it anymore <laughs> it turned into a tv show um but yeah man mandalorian i think is a very smart show they don't uh they don't give you all the information in the first act they really just kind of let it play out they don't have a time limit on their episodes it's just like yo this episode's 38 minutes this one's 50 this one's 46 why because that's how long it took to make like it's just such a great way of making art yeah. without that structure of it has to be 42 minutes because we have four sets of commercials and we have oh, to get them in man. there it's so inorganic so when you feel something that different and every episode's a different length in time it just i don't know i think it just makes the viewer feel better like something more real is going on even though we all acknowledge it's fake <laughs> right it is fake right <laughs> You might have the force. You might have the force. Yeah, I think he does. I don't. Oh, I don't. Neither do I. I'm more Han Solo. I acknowledge it exists <laughs> reluctantly. What What do you see like uh, on the beginning of your pursuing career into the movie different back then than today? Social media. Social it, it media is... It didn't exist. It simply didn't exist. I didn't have to have a certain amount of followers to book a role. Like that, and there's people out there that have to suffer through that today. It's, they turned it into the record industry. The record industry used to build stars. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, they said, no, you build yourself. It's too much work. And then once you're big enough, then we'll sign you, right? And so they started to have to have these followings that were big enough. Like, oh, you if you have 10,000, then we'll sign you to this level deal. Higher and higher and higher. Actors are having to do the same thing now. Isn't that crazy, And man. so many of them are sensitive to the outside world, whether they're educated on the outside world or not, they're still sensitive and empathetic to it. So when they hear all kinds of hate and love, it affects them in a positive and negative way. And I've seen it on the Punky Brewster show I did. It comes out next month. And uh, there are four kids on the show. And I've already seen how social media has shaped the way their brains think. And it's not right or wrong. It's their normal. From mm -hmm. my perspective, it's wrong. It's what they're having to deal with and 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 how they're more programmed to just agree or disagree. And there's no more gray area. There's no more discussion and acceptance. It's just you disagree, so I'm going to mute or block you. And I'm like, man, when I grew up... <laughs> You could, you and I could, you and I could have an argument about martial arts and it could be a full, well, here's what's beautiful about martial arts. Cause at the end of that, it's a debate, right? Yes. And I say, my, my boxing is superior to your jujitsu. And I don't believe you can take me down before I knock you out. And the beautiful thing about martial arts is no one gets to comment. There gets to be an actual decision. Yeah. <laughs> and then whatever happens, happens. And the debate is won or lost. But in this digital virtual world where there's no accountability at all, none, you can say, I can tweet you, jujitsu sucks. And there's no one to go, let me show you why it doesn't. So you have a less accountable human being being put into the world as a young man and as a young woman. And now that that morality has been reshaped, that's their new normal. And we become the strange ones. And I hope 
that trend doesn't continue, but it certainly is because people say wild stuff, man, wild stuff. And it's always easy to say on the telephone or on the computer than actually see the person and say something to of them. Course, if we're face to face and I know the end result is if I say jujitsu isn't good and I don't give him the opportunity to prove me wrong, then I'm the fool and I'm the coward. On social media, that dynamic doesn't, doesn't, exist. doesn't exist. So people just say crazy stuff. And I love like the UFC and combat sports. So I follow a lot of that and I love watching the replies from people and seeing that sort of reprogrammed mind and how they interpret information and how they're programmed to respond. Because you can literally almost tell what decade someone's from based yeah. on their response. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And again, it isn't, from my perspective, is wrong. But that's not to say it's wrong. It's just, it, I grew it, up in a different time. So to me, it's just so foreign and strange. Yeah. For all of us, definitely, is a, it's a different world. I think we have in a way to adapt ourselves to understand what's going on today. Oh, yeah, man. When I first started on social media, someone was coming after me hard. I thought they were joking. Because I was like, you know, I was in my, I think I was like 39, 40. I was like, well, I'm here messing around. And they were really mad. I was like, yo, man, I, I didn't know you were trying to insult me. I was like, you got to understand without earning my respect, you can't affect my mood either way. Like you can't make me feel good about a movie I did. He was mad about Summer Catch because apparently he found out it wasn't a documentary about baseball. It was a romantic comedy. I'm like, Dude, your girl took you. What you think? She, uh, like she made you go. You think she's gonna drag you to a Jackie Robinson biopic? Like, no, man. Who are you mad at? Me or your ex girlfriend for not living up to the to the character that was so perfect that I played? That is not me. Like, why are you mad at me? But he was, boy. And that's when I was like, all right. So that's that's the dynamic that Twitter sort of established for me early on. And I haven't seen many people not be that guy. So for me, it's I'm never serious about it. I just go right on, man. Cool. Sorry you hated it. <laughs> Life goes <laughs> Stay on. Stay tuned yeah, good for the luck. sequel. <laughs> We're shooting in your backyard. <laughs> I just try to have fun with him, but I would say, and your father and a family man, and you have your kids. What would you say today for somebody that wants to go into this business? And what would you recommend them to do or follow the steps? And you know, it's seems to be easy when you see somebody that already achieved so much but i know the starting on the business want to be an actor and it's it's kind of a, a tough this tough road this business is incredibly tough if you don't know who you are already when you get here if you're still soul searching it will chew you up and spit you out if you know who you are and it's not a fake it till you make it thing. Like you have to know who you are and it's a different kind of confidence. The majority of the decision makers in Hollywood are so insecure that you will own every single room you walk into. You will get offers on jobs you were meant to audition for. They won't even, they'll be too scared to ask you to read if you know who, I, I swear I, it's happened to me. Where they're like, yeah, but you have to read. I'm like, all right, cool. And I didn't even go in going like, I'm going to be so confident. They won't make me read. I just went in, talked to them. I was totally ready to go. And by the time we finished talking, the director was like, yeah, man, you're my guy. Like, we're good. I'm telling you, if it's Shakespeare said it way before me, know thine self. Meaning if you're insecure and you don't know how good you are, or you don't know what you have to work on, 
right? Like if you're afraid to acknowledge, you can't get better. My goal on every movie was to be a better actor at the end of it than at the beginning. And in that regard, I succeeded on every film I did, regardless on whether the movie was a success or not. That was my goal. It was a simple goal, but it was one that I could constantly focus on so that I didn't go crazy three months on a movie, right? So as far as like coming out here, it's tough because you're going to probably come out here when you're young, 18, 19. And I'm telling you right now, 18, 19, if I didn't have the people surrounding me, surrounding me, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I would have a similar story to my father because drugs were all around me on just about every set I was ever on at every Hollywood party I've basically ever gone to. And if it wasn't for those men and the handful of women as well, then uh, shout out to Kathy, the Punisher, um, old school <laughs> kickboxer. A lot of y'all won't know who she is, but she was great. She was uh, Michelle Fiverr's stunt double as Catwoman too. Awesome chick. Um, but without those people and their philosophies, then I'm not, then I'm not the dad I am. I'm not able to walk away the way I did. I'm not able to try new things the way I did. And I'm not the confident, like relaxed dude that, that, you know, I would be a total different beast. And I know that because I've seen it a million times. I, I tell people today that, uh, I never drink alcohol in my life. You never, ever? I never drink any kind of alcohol my whole life. Never even try. Never smoke anything. It's a beast. I never did anything. Now, see, I and like I remember, a little Japanese sake. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not against if people want to do their things. I mm -hmm. respect. It's your choice. It's fine. I just saw a lot of things growing up and some results with some people. And I never thought would add or do any good to That's me why in you my life. so young. Health. I never, I just thought it, you just fed on the souls of your opponents. Man, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps you young. <laughs> but again, going to so many parties, it's just so many things, people drunk oh, yes. and use all kinds of drugs, but I never felt the need, oh, I need to do that to be part of that. No. I've seen a lot of fighters. You want to do that good for you or whatever kind of it is. And, yeah. you know, and then I can look at my kid and say something to them because I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, man. You know? And, what is new out there for you, Freddie? You, you've done so much. You, you've been around so much in a young age still. Yeah. You look very young well, and you are you, very young. You. Yeah, look how I feel. But I what is grades. out there? What, <laughs> what, what is like, a, I would say, the legacy in a way you want to leave for the people that follows you, for the people that since the beginning still loving you, all the young age people that love you and have that charisma that attracts so many. That's that, a good example. That's... That'll be the toughest question you ask me. And I'll be 100% honest with you. It's That's hard to answer legacy questions because when you're a junior, you're basically a statue built to honor that which walked before you. And the expectations are much, much different. And the goals that you set for yourself, you've been sort of programmed to set like my grandfather before he passed away he said uh he was in hospice care we knew he was going to go he had cancer so he's staying with us the last you know few days and my granny said hey it's probably his last day your papa wants to talk to you I go in there i'm a teenager now i still called him papa and uh i said what's up papa he says did you clean your room today i said yeah he grabs my hand he was always so strong and this is the first time his grip wasn't that strong and it made me scared and he said uh i'm so proud of you I'm like, all right. I didn't know that he meant like, oh, I'm proud of the man I think you're going to be. And then in the same sentence, he says, <laughs> you know, your father really screwed things up for this family and it's going to be up to you to fix it. 
And an hour later, he was dead, dead in our house. So this huge backpack was put on my back and I got to carry that to Hollywood basically. <laughs> and it was heavy and difficult. So legacy wasn't ever a part of the program, right? So as I got older and got over that stuff and it took decades, it took decades. I wasn't over it till I was probably 35, 36 years old and started living for myself. Um, so the only legacy that I can, that I can say that I would want my kids to follow or the best lesson they could learn is have your own dreams and, and pursue your own dreams and don't allow others to, to lay the path in, or you can allow them to lay the path in front of you. But if you don't want to walk on it, have the courage to step away and do something different because I'll be honest, I didn't want to be an actor. It, I had to, it was never, it, honestly, man, I'd probably still be writing professional wrestling if I never, if I never acted. I would have gone to Connecticut and been like, "Hey, man, I could do this. Give me a shot," and they would say yes because they're crazy like that. So you know, it would be pursue your dream. You can listen to what people want for you, and if it works, and you and your mom wants you to be a doctor, and you go, "Yeah, actually, then do it." But if in your heart you want to be a ballerina, go be a ballerina. If you want to you know, try out for the NBA, but they say you're too short, then you get on a Euro team, like pursue your dream, but make sure it's your dream. As far as legacy, I walked in another man's shadow for so many years. By the time I broke out of that shadow, I didn't even want to be in the business anymore. So it was like, I don't even want to cast the shadow. I'm going to go hide in the trees. It's hot in the sun. So, you know, that's kind of, that what is going to end up being my legacy, whether I want it to be or not. And I want it to be that. So I'm comfortable with it. I just don't have the, uh, I haven't put in enough years chasing my own dreams to, to be able to answer that question completely. Like I just started pursuing other things that I loved and I'm 44 and they're the things that I love, you know, like agriculture, I bought some land, I'm going to farm on it. Like that's the kind of stuff that I like. I like video games and stuff like know, that. But you know, and you know, that is very difficult for people that are in the movie business to step out. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was your choice. For a ton of reasons, man. You to just pay, step look, out and, and, yeah, I and did a couple jobs just because they you know? paid me. You know, it's hard to say no when they're throwing that money at you. I could have walked a year and a half before I did, but it was just like, yo, they're going to, what? Well, okay, I've never filmed there before. Let's go. But it wasn't, there wasn't that passion like there was early in my career. Um, I remember one of the first movies I did, man, and I knew I would never care as much as she did was with Parker Posey and she was telling me how much she loved the film industry. Right. And how much she loved every time she lived in a hotel, she would bring uh, comet cleaner with her and she would scrub everything. <laughs> right? She would scrub everything. And she goes, I love that feeling of taking over a new place. And I'm like, man, all I want are roots in one place. And I don't want to leave. Like, I just, I just want to stay. I don't want to be a gypsy. And I never spoke about the business with the passion that she did. And so I knew I didn't love it as much as her. Whereas if you start asking me about martial arts or Dungeons and Dragons or, or, you know, like anime or old, you know, sixties and seventies, Japanese cinema, like I'm your guy. <laughs> if you want to talk about Sean Penn, I got three minutes, you know, I could talk about his and how sick he is, but that's it. Like I, I don't have more than that, man. You want to talk pro wrestling? I'll talk your ears off, man. My grandma's Puerto Rican 
She still thought it was real till the day she died. My wife did a movie with The Rock. She stopped talking to my wife because The Rock became the corporate champion, not the people's champion. He turned his back on the people. And how dare my wife work with a man who would do that and didn't speak to her till the day she died. Didn't speak to her. So I can talk wrestling and that kind of stuff with way more passion than the industry because this industry is a dangerous business. And that's why you asked me the question, what advice would you give to someone starting out? Because you know how dangerous it is and you've seen how, look, it can be wonderful, but the the success stories like baseball are far fewer than 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 the failures. You know, three for 10 is a, is a Hall of Fame baseball career. The amount of actors coming out here is probably lower than that as far as the ones that make it. And the way you fail in this business is far more tragic and much more difficult than when I was coming up. Now your failures are a meme. You know what I mean? Like it's something on Twitter that people ridicule and say, oh, yeah, oh, when you yeah. realize you blew it or something. And they just try to humiliate these poor young people who haven't found themselves yet. And now they're being defined by other people because they have no definition of self yet. So it's like, I had it easy. Yeah. I, I just had to deal with critics. <laughs> you know, and now anybody with an account is a critic and you have to just listen to that and take that. Like, I don't know how the young kids do it. I would have to have martial arts and be training every, every single day, man. And all the actors that I know who have martial arts in their life disconnect from this business much easier than the ones who don't, at least in my experience, 25, 26 years. And let me ask you something too is who is Freddie Prince Jr.? Just a big dork, man. I, here, I'll tell you who I am. Last night on Zoom, I, ca I called in all my friends, five friends, and I was a dungeon master at 44 years old for a pirate adventure that I wrote, and it was about them robbing this duchess who was prejudiced against short people. And this dwarf pirate said, hey, will you help me out? <laughs> this woman humiliated me, and she made all these other pirates laugh at me. So when I gave him a New York accent, too, his name was Ronnie the Red. He was tough, but he was short. And so they go do this caper, and in the closet, what a robbing her like boudoir, one of the other characters was dancing with her, and he's having to roll to have successful dance steps. If he steps on her toes, she might get pissed, go back to her bedroom, leave, and bust our guys. So one guy's rolling, the other guys are robbing it. Checks this closet, and they find two whalebone carved stilts. And they find out the Duchess is a little person too. And that's why she's prejudiced. <laughs> and so Ronnie the Ram is, he's, he's growling like, God, oh, I can't believe. <laughs> and all my friends are laughing and stuff. And to, and to write something that makes them genuinely laugh like that and have a good, and they of course succeeded. I'm not trying to kill them. And they made it back. And it's like two hours, but you know what I mean? And we can't get together and be personable. So this is the best we can do. But that's who I am, man. Like, that's the kind of dude I've been since I was 12 years old and played my first game of d and I'm 44 years old. And, you know, me and it's just a bunch of dumb actors, me and Seth Green and Macaulay Culkin and like this group. And we just play dumb games and have a blast. And we're all grown ups. And, you know, my wife goes, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows I don't care. So it's, it works out, man. But that's who I am, dude. I just, I know... I know what I like. I know what I don't like. I know what helps me achieve my goals and I know what doesn't. And I think if you can work those four things out, you can accomplish pretty much whatever goals you set out. As long as it's not like I want to breathe underwater or whatever. Well, maybe yeah. you can. I don't know. Man, I'm sitting here and um, talking to you. I think I don't know. And it's so many good 
advice in a way in your words for a lot of people there, regardless of what they want to do with their life. I think one of the main things you said is you got to know who you are. Yeah. No matter what kind of business you want in your life. And here I am talking to you since the first day I met you until today, still smiling, <laughs> very happy guy, enjoy life, which it's incredible, man. And uh, well, thank you for being here, Freddie. Thank you very much. Yeah, great meeting you. Thanks for coming out. It's man. my pleasure, man. Jiu-Jitsu has brought, and all martial arts, but Jiu-Jitsu has brought so much to my life. And I would encourage any parents out there you know, the first three instructors you find may suck and your kid hates it, but I promise you there's one out there that will click. It's like a director with an actor. It's like a teacher with a, with a kid. You get two or three in your life that you really click with in 12 years of school. It's the same way with martial arts professors. And when you find that right one, it can really change your kid's life. I went from a kid who was bullied, insecure, in search of a father, to a kid who no, literally people called a bully buster because I would fight for other kids, to a confident young man who was still searching for a damn father. But I worked everything else out. And a big part of that was because of the patience and the discipline and the confidence that martial arts brought into my life. So if there's parents out there and you're wishy-washy about it because the first two times you tried, your kid really hated it, it was just the wrong teacher. It wasn't your kid. There are no bad students they're just students and they just need to find the right teacher. So don't give up. Go search online. You'll find the right one. There's hundreds in every city in this country. Thank you, Fred. Thank you guys for another no gear required. Man, when I said it's a special guest, now you guys know why. Oh, you're kind, man. <laughs> Thank you, Freddie. Always been good to me. Thank you. Thanks, brother.